Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, where we equip men and women to be faithful in every aspect of life. This week, you'll hear a discussion between Dr. Peter Lightheart and Pastor Wilson on the question, Does the gospel require us to pursue and promote unity among Protestants, Catholics, and Orthodox, and others? From a New St. Andrews graduate forum. If you or someone you know is looking for a college in the fall, look no further than New St. Andrews College. Apply today at nsa.edu forward slash fall 2020. Okay, let me, uh, let me pray. Father, thank you for uh, all your kindness to us. We thank you for this opportunity now for the discussion we can have. We commit it to you. We pray for your uh, guidance and blessing uh, and what we do. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, so, uh, welcome back, Dr. Lightheart. Thank you. And thank you very much for uh, being willing to do this. Uh, we're delighted that you're here. Let me explain how it's going to work. The, uh, the question is, does the gospel uh, require us to pursue and promote unity among Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, and others? So that's the question we have at hand. Uh, Dr. Lightheart is going to uh, speak first for 10 minutes. Then Pastor Wilson has 10 minutes. And then they, uh, they have five minutes to respond to one another's arguments. And then I'm going to open it up for questions and then leave a couple of minutes at the end for each of them to uh, have a final statement. Okay, so without further ado, Peter. Thank you. Um, thanks to President Merkel and uh, Dr. Edwards for uh, arranging this. Dr. McIntosh had a hand in it. I got some emails from him too. Uh, thanks, Doug, for being oh, yeah. willing to revisit this again. Uh, we talked about this a couple of years ago when I visited Moscow and uh, had a, another grad forum, so it's good to come back and now with my book published to be able to speak to it again. Um, as uh, Tim said, I have 10 minutes, so I'm going to get right to business. My uh, position is the affirmative of the question that the gospel does require us to pursue un unity with other Christians, whether Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, or others a large category of Christians that don't fit into that, uh, they don't fit into those categories. Um, and I want to begin by just talking about the gospel a little bit, what's entailed in the gospel, what is the gospel. Uh, fundamentally, the gospel is the announcement that God has entered into his world to repair the damage of sin and to undo it. He sent his son in the flesh in order to overcome uh, sin and the effect of sin. And in scripture, one of the major effects of sin, one of the major things that God is undoing in the incarnation and, in God, and his work throughout the, his, the history of Israel uh, is the fracturing of the nations, uh, particularly as it took place in the, at the Tower of Babel. Um, in the uh, sequence of events in Genesis, uh, Abraham is called immediately after the event at Babel. Um, Nations are scattered, their language is confused, their lip confused, uh, and then God calls Abram to be his agent to resolve that splintering of the nations and to bring the blessing of God to the nations and to achieve what Babel, uh, the people of Babel, the men of Babel, attempted to achieve and didn't achieve. Uh, so from the beginning of Israel's story, uh, God's, God's agenda for the world is to bring uh, blessing to the nations and to unite the nations under the blessing of God, uh, with different cultural traditions, different languages, uh, but united in worship of the one God 
and united in under the blessing of God. Uh, that's the promise to Abraham. You see, reiterated in the prophets, and the, it's a promise that Jesus comes to fulfill. Uh, this is explicit in uh, various letters of Paul, where Jesus' death is uh, specifically directed at uh, reuniting the human race in Christ. Uh, Ephesians 2 is the classic passage uh, where Jesus' death is the means by which the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles, that great one, that single great dividing wall between two different categories of humanity is broken down so that uh, God can constitute one new man, one new humanity in his son. That's a fulfillment of uh, God's purpose and his work that he's been uh, he had embarked on from the time of Abraham. Um, Pentecost shows that the Spirit is doing the same thing. The Spirit comes from the same comes from the Jesus who broke down the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. And when the Spirit comes, we have a a, a Babel-like event. Uh, Pentecost in Acts two is has a number of parallels with Babel. Uh, it's another language miracle, but a language miracle that unites uh, people from every nation under heaven. Uh, in hearing the gospel in their own tongue, uh, unites them in the spirit, unites them in baptism. Uh, Jesus is working out this uh, promise to Abraham as the seed of Abraham. He's working out this promise to Abraham in in the world through the spirit. Um, that's what the church is. The church is that one new humanity, that united humanity that God is creating. That's what that's inherent in the gospel. That's not a secondary implication of the gospel. But when we proclaim Jesus as the uh, savior from sin. Part of what we're proclaiming is Jesus is the savior from the uh, sh- fracturing of the human race, and the uh, the gospel is about the reunion of the human race. That's basic to the to preaching the, the gospel. And um, my argument is that we don't measure up to that. We are sub- we're called to be the one new humanity in the present, uh, moving toward an ultimate unity and ultimate glory. Uh, but we're called to be that one new humanity in the present. And that uh, we, that is Christians broadly, don't measure up to that. And we can, we can think through this from a number of different angles, but if you just take some basic Pauline texts where Paul addresses uh, problems within different churches, uh, uh, the Corinthians are uh, splitting up along uh, preferred, according to their preferred apostle. I am a Paul, I am Cephas, I am of Apollos, I am of Christ. Uh, Paul sees that identification of a Christian with a leading teacher rather than with Jesus in whose name he was baptized or with the triune God in whose name is baptized. That uh, finding his identity in a leading teacher as a violation of baptism and, and as a, an assault on Christ. Is Christ divided, he asks. Don't you know that you're all baptized into one name? You all bear one name. Um, the church today obviously bears many different names, some of them uh, specifically tied to individuals uh, sometimes tied to movements or other, uh, or to other um, uh, identifying marks of the church, but we're not united in name in the way that it seems Paul is insisting on. Uh, Paul uh, also addresses the issue of table fellowship, particularly in Galatians 2, where he goes after Peter for uh, re- withdrawing from table fellowship with Gentiles um, and for re- reinstituting that wall that had been broken down in the cross and dividing Jews and Gentiles. And Paul considers that a violation of the gospel and an assault on uh, justification. Peter is implicitly, by his actions, undermining Paul's teaching on justification by withdrawing from table fellowship. Um, 
uh, and we we aren't united in table fellowship uh, broadly as as the church as the churches today. Um, there are churches that uh, permit only their one particular type of Christian to share in the table. Uh, there are uh, large churches, the Catholic Church, the Orthodox churches, that exclude large segments of uh, the church from the, uh, from Christ's table. Uh, so we're not united in table fellowship, and I don't think I need to belabor the point that we're not united in doctrine or in belief or in confession um, that's that's pretty obvious and but that is something that Paul urges us to is a unity of mind uh, God intends to reunite humanity to unite humanity in the church uh, so that um, I think what does that look like practically in terms that I've just set out it means that Christians uh, take the name that they were given in baptism and name themselves by that baptismal name it means universal table fellowship among all churches it means that we're united in uh, confession and in belief. Uh, and if uh, uh, that's, that's the kind of uh, unity that, uh, that uh, Paul urges in various letters, it's the kind of unity that Jesus and the Spirit are working toward. And that means, as my, the title of my book suggests, that does mean the end of existing uh, ecclesial entities. It means the end of denominations that identify themselves by a particular uh, particular tradition or a particular uh, uh, person's theology or a particular tradition of theology or a particular uh, particular form of church government. Um, if we're united and we share just the name, the baptismal name, if that's the name that we identify ourselves with, then those kind of denominations, those kind of names, uh, will come to an end. I think it also means this is the title of my book. It means the end of Protestantism as a as a family of churches. If there is one worldwide communion of churches uh, that is united together as churches, then uh, Protestantism as a separate family of churches will cease to exist. So, of course, will Roman Catholicism. So, of course, will Orthodoxy. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's the trajectory of God's work in the world with his church. Uh, a unity of the human race that is promised to Abraham, fulfilled in Jesus and the Spirit. The question is, we don't, we don't live in that situation. Um, that is a the ultimate unity, the ultimate fellowship that we'll have comes uh, in glory in the new creation. Uh, but that's where we're headed. And so the question is, how do we behave in the present to make sure that we're uh, we're constructing, to use uh, Doug's Doug's uh, image, that we're constructing the church in a way that's following the blueprint that Jesus has set out, and not constructing in the church in a way that's going to inhibit and be an obstacle uh, to that ultimate unity. Uh, part of this, part of what I would advocate is just a reorientation of ecclesial imagination. We need to begin to be able to imagine a church in which these divisions don't exist. Um, that these divisions didn't exist always. Uh, I believe that uh, Jesus is moving the church toward a time when these divisions won't exist and we need to begin to think about what it would look like for that to happen. That's maybe in the distant future, but we need to have a refresh, and refresh our ecclesial imaginations. We need to pray um, because uh, unity is God's gift. It's not something we can manufacture or control. Uh, it's a gift of the Spirit, and so if the church is going to be unified, it's going to come from uh, God's work and not ours. Uh, and I think part of that is to get to the specific question, finally, <laughs> is to... Uh, uh, to uh, uh, recognize Orthodox, Catholic, and other Christians as brothers, uh, wayward brothers in some cases, very wayward brothers in others, 
but as members of the same family with whom we have to deal and with whom we need to seek uh, union in the truth, un unity in the truth. Thank you. Uh, thank you to the NSA for setting this up, and thank you for, to Peter for being willing to talk about this again. Um, I've uh, written my thoughts down for the opening statement. You can see how wonderfully it will go when I go extemporaneously later. Then you will reflect back on why you why prepared his notes. Um, so the question before us is, does the gospel require require us to pursue and promote unity among Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, and others. Uh, I w I'll just note in passing that that phrase, and others, is kind of a wild card. <laughs> like, well, you know, yikes. I, I've got seven, uh, seven thoughts I wanted to lay out. Number one, in order to enter into the spirit of the, the event, let me begin by simply replying, no. Okay. <laughs> that we, we wanted to have a discussion, so I, I thought I'd say no. Um, I, do, I do this provisionally. I, it has to be qualified, though. I do this provisionally, knowing that all Christians have to be eschatological, long-run optimists, meaning that at some level, the answer has to be yes, but. Okay? Um, but if all, things in heaven, if all things in heaven and on earth are reconciled through Christ, Colossians 1.20, then why not Protestants and Catholics and EO? If the Jews are going to be grafted back into the olive tree, then we should not stumble over the prospect of a great Christian reunion at some point centuries or millennia hence. But for all practical purposes, on a day-to-day -day level, I don't believe the gospel requires us to do anything in particular to pursue and promote unity among Protestants, Catholics, Orthodox, and others. Jesus prayed that the Father would accomplish such, such unity uh, John 17, 21, not that I would. So I trust that in his perfect time, he will do so. Uh, I'm not in charge of that. I don't have the steering wheel. The second thing, the second observation, is there are two kinds of unity. Well, at least two kinds of unity, but there are two kinds of unity in Ephesians 4. One is the kind that we already have and are required to preserve and maintain, Ephesians 4, 3 maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. We do this by staying out of attitudinal sin. We are to be humble, meek, patient, bearing with one another in love, uh, etc. from verse 2. The, the other kind of unity, later on in chapter 4, we are not supposed to have yet right, until we all grow up into the perfect man, until we grow up into the unity, unity of the faith, Paul says. When God is finished with his work in, in history, the prayer that Jesus offered will then finally be completely answered, Ephesians 4.13. The bride then will be without spot or wrinkle or any such blemish. The third point is the first kind of unity, attitudinal unity, can be displayed in places where we might not have anticipated it. Consider the sources of the following two quotes. First one, in, per in perusing a deeply spiritual book, of devotion, you have been charmed and benefited, and yet, look at, and yet upon looking at the title page, it may be that you found that the author belonged to the Church of Rome, Church at Rome. What then? Why then it has happened that the inner life has broken all barriers, and your spirits have communed. For my own part, in reading certain precious works, I have loathed their Romanism, and yet I have had close fellowship with their writers in weeping over sin and adoring at the foot of the cross, 
and in rejoicing in the glorious enthronement of our Lord. Blood is thicker than water, and no fellowship is more inevitable and sincere than fellowship in the precious blood and in the risen life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, in the common reception of the one loaf, we bear witness that we are one. Now, that was Charles Spurgeon okay, in his uh, communion meditations. A second quote would be, far more serious still is the division between the Church of Rome and evangelical Protestantism in all its forms. Yet how great is the common heritage which unites the Roman Catholic Church with its maintenance of the authority of Holy Scripture and with its acceptance of the great early creeds to devout Protestants today. We would not indeed obscure the difference which divides us from Rome. The gulf is indeed profound, but profound as it is, it seems almost trifling compared to the abyss which stands between us and many ministers of our own church. That was Machen in Christianity and Liberalism. So he said there's a far greater divide between uh, me and some fellow Presbyterians than there is between me and Roman Catholics. These are, these are the words of stout Protestants, not bigots. Four, in a similar vein, I have to confess that I've learned a great deal from papists, and I have read enough of them to have my favorites among them. Not surprisingly, Chesterton is right up there, and he is the one who taught me not to tear down fences unless I understood the reason the fence was put up in the first place. His words, from this is from a book called The Thing. In the matter of reforming things, as distinct from deforming them, there is one plain and simple principle, a principle which will probably be called a paradox. There exists in such a case a certain institution or law, let us say for the sake of simplicity, a fence or gate erected across a road. The more modern type of reformer goes gaily up to it and says, I don't see the use of this, let us clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer, if you don't see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think. Then, when you can come back and tell me that you do see the use of it, I may allow you to destroy it. So I think that that's an important qualification. Five, it is easy to say that denominations are the institutionalizing of disunity, which Peter argues for in his book. But this is an area where it is perilously easy, I think, to fall prey to our metaphors. What would be our reply if someone were to say that the tourniquet was the institutionalizing of the wound? And then simply remove the bandage, you might discover, you, you, by, by removing the bandage, you haven't removed the wound. All you did is start the bleeding again. Six. The old joke is told of two ministers visiting, and one of them concluded, well, obviously we are both servants of God, you in your way and I in his. Uh, proposals that, that want to describe in detail how the church will look post-unification, as chapter 3 in the end of Protestantism does, are proposals that, in my view, are far more likely to create one more denomination than they are likely to reduce the overall number of them. And on the assumption that denominations are bad, should, uh, should we consider perhaps that we ought to have done our homework on the genesis of these things? How, we've got all these denominations. How do they start? Uh, what, what causes them to spring up? Planting a standard for the Christian world to rally to might just plant a standard for one more splinter of the Christian world to rally to. And we discover that we're, we're making the problem worse. Seven, last, I'm concerned that a lot of damage can be done by interpreting current history as a crisis point for the ages. Friends don't let friends emanatize the eschaton. I think that there's a tendency, encouraged by Rosenstock-Husey, 
to overread the tea leaves of the present crisis. When this happens, the data found in uh, chapter 9 of the end of Protestantism, the chapter on the reconfiguration of global Christianity, is taken as an encouragement to believe that this crisis is possibly the ecumenical moment, when it could be more readily understood as a time when everybody really scatters, um, as the sage once put it, lots of asses and elbows. On top of that, the patterns of scriptural history, described wonderfully by Peter in chapter 8, uh, going through the script, the God's pattern of breaking, reuniting, breaking again, reuniting, uh, get read in such a way as to flatter us and chastise our forefathers. If we get to engage in a, very, a bumpy and very messy ecumenism, then why not read past history as a version of the same thing, instead of taking it as their disobedience but our opportunity? So uh, Peter says in the book a number of times that um, you don't just, this is not a big kumbaya moment. You, you, the fact that we're one church means that we confront the idolatry at Rome and we, can, we confront the problems over there. Um, but it would be very easy for me confronting them for that 100 years from now to have someone read me as a troublemaker instead of uh, the ecumenical activist. And I think that we need to read um, backwards charitably as we, just as much as we look forward, hopefully. Thank you. Okay. So, Peter, you have five minutes to respond to one, <coughs> some of those, all of them. Sure. Uh, I probably will mainly uh, raise additional questions, the questions back to you, Doug. Okay. Uh, and then uh, at one point, uh, spend a little bit of time pulling out something you commented on from the book. Uh, the the first on the first question about the the uh, um, um, uh, a future it's a future unity you said you said no ended up with a yes but um, but the, it seemed like we have to say that the future trajectory of the church if we do believe that the church is uh, is is being united if that's the uh, post millennial or eschatological destiny that has to have some influence on how we're acting in the present. Um, and uh, there are ways of acting in the present that um, consolidate, um, you know, denominational, uh, uh, consolidate denominations, expand denominations, uh, but may not be contributing to some, uh, some ultimate uh, unity in the future. So that, the, the future trajectory of the church, which you seem to agree with me about, is uh, uh, has to set some parameters for our own, or some, set some demands for our own actions in the present. The other, the other comment on that first statement is that it, there's a degree of complacency in the way you describe that that I don't find in Paul's writings about um, you know people choosing upsides and naming themselves by their favorite teacher. Uh, Paul doesn't say, well, that'll get resolved in. Uh, several millennia, uh, he confronts it in Corinth and uh, confronts it uh, pretty, uh, pretty severely, confronts Peter very severely. So um, I, 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 I'm, the complacency puzzles me because that doesn't seem to reflect the New Testament priorities. Um, on the two forms of unity, um, I, I can grant the, the distinction that you make, um, but I uh, wonder how you know that the second form of unity that you describe is an eschatological unity, and you know that that what what that what that looks like. That is not an attitudinal one. Um, I'm, uh, it seems like you're importing something into that, 
And again, the question in my mind is, uh, supposing that's the case, what do we do now uh, to make sure that uh, we're in, in, in sync with what, uh, what, God is, uh, what God is going to do? Uh, on the fences issue, um, part of the argument of the book is that uh, uh, fences have come down. Um, I, I talk about uh, Vatican II, for example, or um, other examples that we could use. Uh, but Vatican II is a mixed bag in all kinds of ways. But one thing that it does is tear down uh, certain barriers to Protestant Catholic um, dialogue and ecumenical activity. There's an, there's an openness to, uh, there's a receptivity to Protestants. Uh, that's articulated in Vatican II that gets worked out in, uh, in Catholic uh, theology since then. Um, that's a fence that at least has been modified. Um, so the, the part of the argument is that uh, we're, in the, we're in a particular kind of moment where that's actually happening. It's not something that we, uh, that, I'm, uh, that I'm suggesting that we do. It's something that I see happening that we should uh, capitalize on. Uh, the, the thing I want to explain further a little bit is the uh, interpreting current history in terms of you know, crisis and uh, moment of, uh, I understand the, the, uh, the difficulty of making those kind of uh, judgments and I uh, admit in the book that my judgment about the current state of things may be mistaken, but I try to use the paradigm that I developed that you mentioned uh, of uh, the historical changes that Israel's go, Israel goes through and try to isolate some of the common features of those transitions. What's happening within Israel? What is happening in Israel's relation to the nations? Uh, what do these transition points look like when they move, when Israel moves from a, uh, a, a collection of tribes under the judges to a monarchy? Uh, when they move from, when the monarchy collapses and they move from monarchy into a, a subject people in a, a sequence of empires? What's going on in those at those moments of change, uh, and the argument is that uh, the the kinds of things that are happening there are the kinds of things that uh, uh, we can see happening in the world around us. I recognize the danger of uh, you know using the paradigm and finding the evidence that supports that, and I I do say in the book that uh, this is I, I recognize that uh, I'd be maybe misreading the signs of the times. The other the other point is that the the practical agenda that I suggest seems to me to be relevant and uh, um, a, uh, an evangelical demand, regardless of whether I'm right about the signs of the times. So should we pray for unity? I mean, Jesus does, should we? Um, should we um, uh, recognize um, the, uh, the, for example, the discipline of other churches? Uh, that's, a, that's a kind of unity. Should we welcome Christians from other traditions at the Lord's table? I think all those kinds of things are things that we can do, regardless of whether I've read the the uh, current situation properly. Okay. Um, so let me let me begin with where I think we have a great deal of strong agreement. I thought chapter eight was a very strong chapter, a very good chapter, and I don't uh, and I don't think you would differ with anything I'm about to say. We see how God creates by He separates the the sun and moon, He separates the heaven and earth, He separates the sea and the dry land. <laughs> he creates a perfectly good solitary male and then breaks him, you know, divides him into two. He has two pieces. He makes one into two so that he can then make two into one. So it's a, they, he brings them back in union. And then Eve conceives and one becomes two again, right? She gives birth. And then he 
leaves and takes a wife and the two become one so that one may become two so that and God's been uh, knit one pearl one ever since down to the billions of you know that's his method of doing it you go through the history of Israel and say division higher unity division higher unity division higher unity and we would be tempted to look at um, you know when when you look at a, a fertilized cell under a microscope and the first thing that happens is the one unified cell becomes two and we go ah, you know disunity but actually God has a much higher uh, unity unity purpose in mind and his one of his central tools for that appears to be division right so um, he introduces division because he's got a higher principle down the road and so I don't I don't know why um, I, I grant your uh, challenge that the eschatological unity even if it's 20 years out or 2,000 years out should affect how we behave here and now but that doesn't uh, that doesn't drive what I do in the moment if I don't know whether or not my time in history is a come together moment or a divide for the sake of a higher unity 50 years hence or 100 years how do I know that right um, what, are, what are my responsibilities and what are my duties I, I grant that they're to be informed by the final hope by the reunion of all things that God's final purpose is unity not disunity it's a bride without spot or wrinkle not a, a, an ugly bride and that's all uh, granted and it should translate down into what I do now and so at Christ Church um, the Lord's table is open it's not our table it's the Lord's table um, if you're a baptized Christian come and welcome to Jesus Christ if you're not under the lawful we respect the discipline of other churches we uh, all the things the practical things that you would say we must do in the present we do right and and I'm happy to say in an um, a non in as non-complacent a way as I can that the world is going to end thousands of years hence but it's hard to get worked up <laughs> right um, because I think this is way bigger than any of us and I, I don't think I, I think that we wind up making more of a problem with people who are close to us when we pers when we try to when we try to uh, rush, you know, awaken love before the time, if you want to take it from the Song of Solomon, if we try to do something prematurely, uh, we can, it's not just, oh, that didn't work. We can actually cause damage, friction, the wrong kind of disunity, the uh, prohibited in Ephesians 4.2 disunity in the present moment. So if, if I get into Ancestry.com and I'm, I'm over in the highlands of Scotland looking, tracking down a you know, third cousin once removed, that's great. But if I'm spending um, money and resources that, in such a way as to introduce division into my immediate family, then I'm, what I'm doing is counterproductive because my immediate family is where the Ephesians for two and three action. That's where humility and patience and long-suffering have to be uh, have to be exercised to, to my neighbor, to the person who's, who's right here with me. So I'm, I'm concerned, for example, that the title, The End of Protestantism, is going to get a bunch of people's backs up when if you'd called it The End of Denominationalism, 
uh, or John Frame wrote uh, his book on this and was Evangelical Reunion and you go into the book thinking all kinds of happy thoughts and um, and here you're saying what's he I don't want anybody happy <laughs> <laughs> but, but see that's the, you're assuming something there about at, at this moment in time disunity is good and has a higher uh, you know unifying trajectory or tendency and all of us have to make that judgment call and I, th I think that the divisions that we currently have are not things that I wake up in the morning and say, "How can I, how can I get together with the, the local Roman Catholic priest?" Because if I did, I think I'd I would make a hash of it. I mean, I, I, I could see making things a lot worse. Privilege of readdressing each other. You are at the end. You have two minute final statements. Okay, but yeah. not not questions back. We can slip things in. Okay. You can you <laughs> slip things as they go. It's I a want good that. question. It's one I've been asked. <laughs> I've asked I've <laughs> we have uh, the possibility of questions coming here. Uh, good beauty. <laughs> um, no. Actually, a short question for each of you. Um, don't feel the need to go on about it. But, um, <laughs> in fact, I'd rather you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, to be to lighthearted here, um, I'm, I'm not quite convinced of your analogy between uh, Paul's admonition against, you know, segregating by teacher. I'm not quite convinced of the analogy to denominationalism. Um, there is some of that, certainly. There's a lot of, there are denominations that are born out of just, well, we hate you, and we hate you, well, good, you go your separate ways. But there are the way I see some denominations today is more like it's more like family lineage, more like uh, here's our tradition, here's our tradition, but there's not hostility between each other, which would seem to be what Paul is talking against. Well, it, it doesn't seem to me that he's talking against hostility. Uh, talking about hostility, he's talking about um, well, if you want to uh, do the etymology, he's talking about nominating themselves by uh, a favorite apostle. Uh, uh, taking their name and identity from their favorite apostle. And it, regardless of whether that's peaceable or not, I think Paul is talking about, I mean, Corinth, it was, there were, there were, uh, there was fracturing within the church. But whether that's peaceable or not, it still um, seems to me to be a violation of the name that we've been given um, to uh, identify ourselves as something other than children of the Father, uh, members of the body of Christ. Um, it's the baptism that's the key thing, I think, there. And then uh, one for Pastor Wilson here. Um, so one thing you said early on in your statement was um, we don't have to do anything. You know, if God's, if Jesus is praying to God to give the unity, he's going to give the unity. But presuming that we are going to get that unity eventually, aren't we his instruments? At some point in history, we're going to have to do something. Why not start now? Um, yes, we are his instruments, and whatever God does, whatever God uh, winds up doing at the last day, and whatever is what he's in the process of doing now, I just think we need to be realistic. Our body has trillions of cells in it, and if I'm going to, after this event, if I'm going to go get lunch, one bone marrow cell is not responsible for getting me lunch. <laughs> it doesn't know enough. It, it's just a little tiny piece of the whole thing. 
So God tells us what we need to be doing on the cellular level. Right? So there are certain diseases that where the body starts fighting itself, you know, autoimmune sorts of uh, uh, problems. And I, I take the Ephesians 4 exhortation to humility, patience, love, the fruit of the Spirit, and genuine spiritual life as being that which is necessary for the body to stay healthy. And I'm responsible to see to it that my, my sector, my part of it, is participating in that health. That's my, I'm not responsible to make sure that people in Brazil are doing it right. I, that's, how could I do that? Would you say that the larger unity, the end goal unity, is in fact the end result of lots of little, like the small scales? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, but, but that, that behavior has to be, I, I'm not smart enough, wise enough, shrewd enough to act on a cosmic level at all. I am, on t I, I am literate enough to be able to read my Bible and say, uh, love your neighbor. Okay, check. All right. And I, and I agree with Peter that there's vain, someone could be amicable and vainglorious. You know, someone, someone could name themselves a you know, Lutheran or a Wesleyan or a Calvinist and not have hostility <laughs> toward anyone and still be participating in the problem that Peter tags. And I don't disagree with him about that. I think those sorts of names should only be used as a means of shorthand when you're going to miscommunicate if you don't use them. So I, after I became a Calvinist doctrinally, I spent two years denying that I was a Calvinist um, because it, I learned it from Paul. I didn't learn it from Calvin. It was just, you know, and all I succeeded in doing is making people think I was dishonest. <laughs> they thought I was lying to them. Okay. Uh, uh, just a clarifying observation for Doug and then a question for Peter. Um, I, I would suggest that we actually don't at Christ Church honor the discipline of other churches entirely and that we should not, right? I mean, if the former sister Svetlana of Holy Assumption Orthodox Monastery decides, actually, I've had enough of this, I'd like to, you know, come on down to Protestant Church and marry a nice Protestant guy, she is way on the outs with the discipline right. of the Orthodox Church, right? Or you can imagine a Roman Catholic priest who does the same thing, or a Roman Catholic uh, person who has a what we would consider a biblical divorce, but they never got an annulment. So as far as they got remarried, as far as Rome is concerned, that's real adultery. Like that's actual adultery, and we wouldn't acknowledge the discipline. Right? So um, yeah, we we don't automatically acknowledge anybody's discipline. I agree with you, yeah. but we honor it in that. Uh, so Sister Svetlana shows up at, at our church. I'm going to do what I can, and I, she says I'm under discipline. I'm going to check with them. Maybe she's under discipline because she stole all the right. nunnery right. silver, right? right? <laughs> and so, if ba basically, uh, what we do is we confer, make a good faith effort sure. to honor the the discipline of the other body where possible, right. um, but there's, sometimes not. There's not a, but my point is that there's not a single code of discipline or practice that's currently shared among the churches Correct. that we could honor, and I think that. I'll, I'll get to say more about that in just a moment. But uh, so, Peter, um, pretty simple question: Do you think heresy and schism are real things, like, you know, real things? And given that we should have not only the you know, kind of the attitudinal sort of virtue that Doug described, but that we should be seeking unity in the present as much as we can, not just in the little closet of our heart, but we should actually be trying to connect with other people. But if someone if heresy and schism are real things, 
what constraints does that put upon our desire for unity with that, with, with those groups or with those people, right? And uh, you know, the, the old tradition had a very helpful distinction between material heretic and formal heretic, so we're not, you know, little old Sicilian granny might have all kinds of crazy ideas, but she doesn't mean to. She's holding fast to Jesus in her heart, and we can, you know, Hodge would have called her a Christian, Puritan would have called her a Christian. Um, you're talking about like the bishops of the Roman Church from a Protestant position. You know, or, let's leave this out. Let's not even say who the players are. But if heresy and schism are real things, what? How should a Bible-believing Christian relate to those those situations? Would there not be kind of perforce a sort of disunity, right? And wouldn't wouldn't that be recognized in some measure by something that looks like a discipline or a proclamation? Because even in the days when the church was supposedly one big undivided thing, which I think is a little bit of a fiction, but when it was, it was in the business of making those kinds of anathemas and saying, actually, no, you've gone too far. I think even in the New Testament, there'd be a difference between someone who says, you know, I am with Cephas or I am with Apollos, uh, where the emphasis is being placed on the human teacher rather than the spirit, the unity of Christ and the spirit we have now. That on the one hand, and then sort of the really hardcore Judaizers or the Gnostics with whom there doesn't seem to be that kind of common ground that we can make an appeal to. So that the heresy schism question, and what do you do about it, granting this idea that we should be praying for unity, and I grant that we don't do it enough. Yeah. Uh, simple answer to your question is yes, heresy and schism are real. Um, and that does, uh, obviously has a major effect on what we think our obligations are toward uh, people who believe and profess and uh, and promote false teaching. Uh, but I think in our current situation, I think there's some significant complications to that. Uh, and by, by what authority does a little Bible church, um, independent Bible church, uh, declare, say, the, uh, the Episcopal Church USA a heretical denomination? Um, they may state that, and it may be true, but do they have the authority to declare that? Um, I mean, they may have be able to declare that in some respects for their own members, um, but uh, I, I think the part of the complication is that we, uh, do we have any sort of mechanism for even determining what counts as heresy uh, and what doesn't? The other thing I would say is that, I, I mean, this, this is part of my critique of denominationalism, that it, um, it, it can, and I think does encourage um, indifference, it encourages doctrinal indifference at a certain level because uh, there's, um, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to engage our brothers who are erring. We, in, uh, you know, we might engage them on the internet, but we don't need to live with them. That's all we do on the internet. Yeah. You know, we, we, don't, we don't need to live with them because they're in another denomination. They're somebody else's problem. But if there's, if heresy is real and it's, it's in the church, uh, taking Doug's point that there is a unity that is factual and existing, then that's our problem too, and it's not something that we can. Uh, but again, I think that that just raises the complication again. But uh, seeking unity would mean addressing that and confronting it. But how do you do that in the current situation of division when who has the authority to make that kind of call? Let me ask you one yeah. follow up question, then I'll be done. Do you think anyone has that authority? Because it sounds to me like you're suggesting, well, 
given the current disunity, the only really united church on your schema could make those decisions. And in the absence of such a thing, maybe no one can, right? I mean, the same principle that would apply to the little Bible church, we don't want to just go by quantity, right? Would have to apply to Rome or the Presbyterians or whatever. So I think it might be, you know, is it, do you think it's the case that cognitively we can't make those judgment calls anymore? We certainly can't make them authoritatively. We can't, we can't make them bindingly. Uh, we can, again, we, you can make them bindingly on particular people, but that's, uh, that's, a limited, that's a limited sector of the church that you're making a binding on. So, yeah. I could jump in here. That, and this is, I, I, first, I grant that there is a certain incongruity for a single congregation in East Tennessee that is into snake handling, uh, calling the Roman Catholic Church a cult. Uh, that sort of thing is, happens, and it's, it's odd and it's weird. Okay. Um, but I, having said that, I would point out that if we want to be biblicists, and so, not in the, in the wooden sense, but governed by Scripture, all through the Bible, by what authority do you do these things, is not the question the godly ask the ungodly. Right? It's the question the ungodly ask the godly. By what authority do you... Uh, is the, that's the devil's question. Um, so when a prophet comes roaring out of the wilderness, rebuking all the establishment types, the first thing he's going to run into is, by what authority? You're, you're just a guy, right? The spirit, the spirit of God is not contained in these institutional containers. The other thing is, and there's a conundrum here, and I think it's underneath Peter's um, question, questioning, and that is, if one of the signs of unity is honoring the discipline of other bodies. Other bodies have addressed um, heresy and uh, and and this the schism between those who say schism and schism. Um, <laughs> let's divide over that. Um, so so basically, if if I'm looking out at the the world, I I have to recognize okay if if false brothers come in like Paul talks about in Galatians. False brothers come in, and I tag them as false brothers. You guys aren't Christians at all. This is another gospel. You've fallen from grace. And then they go down the road. What is the responsibility of the ecumenically minded pastor down the road? Is it to receive their baptism or to receive my discipline of them despite their baptism? And if and if and pretty soon we're chasing our tail because we don't have an ecumenical council that can adjudicate it all finally, which is to say that we don't have any means of disciplining until we don't need discipline. The only, the only time we could ever discipline anybody is when we don't need it anymore. Hey, Jeff, take a minute. To sure. Oh, um, well, uh, uh, there, there's a lot of thrown out there, and I'm, not, I'm trying to sort through what, uh, what I want to respond to. Um, yeah, I guess I go back to the point I made in response to Peter. I do think that there's a there's limits to what the church can do. Uh, maybe I pick up your prophet question. There's limits to what the church can do um, in our current state of division. Uh, you need a unified church to stop the Arian heresy and to make ensure that the Arian heresy was eventually suppressed and expelled from the church. You couldn't have done that if uh, you didn't have some sort of uni unified um, mechanism for doing that. Um, I guess I'm. I guess I would distinguish between a prophet who rebukes 
and corrects, and the kind of um, and the kind of uh, decisions that I'm that I, I thought we were discussing, which is decisions about what uh, constitutes heresy, uh, heretical doctrine. Um, yeah, you're right. The prophets uh, Elijah doesn't uh, doesn't fit into the chronicle of kings. He comes from outside, and the spirit doesn't observe those institutional structures, but the institutional structures are there and they're part of the way the church operates. But, and but Nicaea depends on Athanasius. Athanasius is the guy who makes Nicaea but, necessary. But, yes, sure, but Athanasius doesn't, um, he can't decide by himself that, just as Nicaea depends on Athanasius, uh, Athanasius depends on Nicaea. He can't decide by himself that... Uh, but I could decide, I could decide at Christ Church you know, someone's coming to Christ Church, and I can say, "You're a false brother. We, we, we forbid you to come here. Do not." And so we act as far as our congregation is concerned, and then I make a ruckus, and I, and I ask the broader church to act on this, and they're going to have to decide: what do they act on our discipline, or do they act on right. that person's profession? Yeah, sure, they'll have to decide. <laughs> okay, so we're we're running out of time. I want to give two minutes each to sort of sum up because we need to finish to now people get fast. So Doug, you have sort of a two minute final statement oh. and then people will have a okay. two minutes afterwards and you can use that however you like. So um, uh, I would like to uh, simply say that this is a very, very complicated thing. We're talking about the course of human history. We're talking about billions of people we're talking about more variables than we could even count, much less sort out. We, we just are not capable of doing this thing. Um, and so then the question is, well, are we capable of reading the story of God's description of how he will do this great and glorious thing? I th yes, I think we are capable of uh, reading that, rejoicing in it, exulting in it, and looking around, determining that it looks like it's not next week. Looks like that, that uh, the, sh the ships sailing into the the ships of Tarshish sailing into the New Jerusalem and the glory, the bride adorned for her husband and all of that does not look like the state of affairs that is likely to occur in my lifetime. But I can exult in it. I can glory in it. I can, I can preach it. I can preach, um, you know, a, a postmillennial optimism. I can do all those things. But at the end of the day, what? it comes down to is humility of heart that doesn't do you know doesn't get into ecclesiastical road rage things you know where I'm, I'm not colliding with other saints and I would say intellectual humility that enables us to receive the judgments of our brothers who say this is this is heretical that's a problem this is um, this is schism and and what I'm going to do if I embrace that is I'm going to embrace a divided church. In the present, I'm going to I'm go going to embrace somebody saying that guy's out and that guy saying no, I'm not. Uh, there's no there's no way to love my brothers without embracing that condition, and I've got to decide: am I on his side or his side? And I can't be above the fray. I I believe I've got to be humble. Um, cultivate personal uh, godliness, but uh, that's the driving engine, I think, of all of this. 
Uh, a few responses. One is um, Israel and Judah divided for centuries, go into exile, and after 70 years, um, beyond your lifetime, but only 70 years, mm-hmm. um, they come out uh, a different people. They come out as Jews. Mm-hmm. Um, they aren't divided into Israel and Judah anymore. Um, I'm, I'm not sure what the what the argument is for saying that this must be something that happens in the distant future. I don't know that we know that any more than we know that it's happening now. Uh, I would also say that I, I think it's a mistake to assume that you got people at loggerheads, you've got to choose sides. Is that the case? Or is it possible that the impasses that we now have can be surpassed uh, through humble, prayerful debate, discussion, whatever whatever happens? Is it Are the, are the impasses of the present uh, permanent? And why would we think that? They, they can't be. Uh, if uh, what we've been saying is correct. But my, my prepared final statement is this. Um, the, uh, uh, I mean, <coughs> inevitably, discussions like this raise many more questions than the answer. Uh, you know, what about discipline in this situation? What about heresy? What about schism? How do you, how do you manage all these things? Um, and um, I think to those kinds of questions, a lot, uh, many times the answer is, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it has to be for everyone. I don't know, uh, but that's not that. I don't know is not a reason uh, to do nothing. It's not a reason to be complacent with a divided church. Um, it's a reason to begin the 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 the, uh, the path of obedience, the path of faith, which is faith in things that are not seen, and things come to light along the path of faith and obedience. How would we handle this kind of, uh, some of the situations we've been describing? Uh, would that be clearer if we had spent the last 20 years being more diligent and more uh, deliberate about seeking unity with churches uh, in, in our own local areas? Uh, would, those, would those kind of questions, would we have more insight if we'd already been pursuing that? Um, so we walk by faith. We walk confident of where Jesus is taking his church ultimately. We don't know the path, every step of the path, but we walk confident in the final result, the ultimate result of that. And we're also confident, I think, that the Lord illumines our path as we go. Uh, He doesn't give us a full portrait of everything at the beginning. Uh, We have to start on the path of faith, and um, the way of the righteous becomes brighter and brighter until the full light of day. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. That was a discussion between Dr. Peter Lightheart and Pastor Douglas Wilson. If you're looking for a college that promotes clear thinking, rigorous discussions, and teaching in person, come build and fight at New St. Andrews College. Apply today at nsa.edu forward slash fall 2020.